The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. We are live. It is Tuesday, December 28th, 2021, 5.01 p.m. It is a shoebill shirt day, uh, a matter that I'm sure we will get to. Um, But before we uh, introduce our guest or discuss Corvids or shoebills or anything else... Uh, Kate and I have a uh, significant administrative announcement related to the future of the show, um, which is to take effect uh, less than a week from now, as uh, as of uh, January 3rd, I guess, which will be the new, uh, uh, the first show day of the year. Uh, we have decided to uh, scale back to three days a week. Monday, uh, Wednesday, and Friday, Um, uh, because the current pace as we both get back into teaching in the spring is actually unsustainable. It might kill Uh, us. It might actually (laughs) kill us. Um, We are, uh, so we have decided to do uh, the shows three days a week, and um, uh, to work on recruiting uh, 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 new, new co-hosts. Uh, we have some uh, in the works. Um, uh, and um, as we recruit new co-hosts who want to take on new days, we may uh, bring back Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, we may not. Uh, in addition... Um, uh, so we will be uh, giving you the schedule uh, of who's doing what days as we get a little closer to the actual event. In addition, um, uh, I just want you all to know that uh, the audio version of In Lieu of Fun, I have now uh, committed to posting daily at nine o'clock in the morning the previous day's episodes. I have integrated into it, as of today, the theme song by the estimable Ducks with Pants. Uh, So uh, it's all so professional sounding. um, And um, uh, every day, the previous day's show will be there. I'm going to ask you to uh, uh, go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show because uh, we really have no promotional... uh, Uh, activity for it other than you guys Uh, and also to tweet episodes of the show uh, the audio versions that you uh, particularly enjoyed because we're going to uh, you know uh, try try to to build build try to use that to build audience to get people in here Uh, all of which is a long way of saying we are not allowed to have fun anymore um, 
And uh, as we approach the end of year two of In Lieu of Fun, um, we're really not allowed to have fun anymore, but it is great to welcome back Carl Bergstrom, who was on the show in the first year. Uh, he was, you were our first COVID, it's not COVID guest. And, um, and you recommended to us the amazing Kaylee Swift. Right. Um, so welcome back. Well, thank you. It's hard to believe that it's like been well over a year and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that, it's so um, nice to see you. Thank you. It's great to see you as well. And, and fun to be here and, Wait, and so on. But before we get into the shoe bill, then, I don't know if we've told Carl about my cormorant rescue. Uh, yeah, we had a live cormorant rescue on In Lieu of Fun. Oh I rescued, God. yeah. So I was, so while for, for the first 11 months of the pandemic, I don't know if you remember, but I was in, I was in Cape Cod yes. and there was a very lovely fall evening. Um, and the, the tides are really crazy in my part of the Cape, but um, like 14 feet. And uh, there is like uh, this little bay that we walk down to and walk around. And I was walking and I was like, I hear something. It was pitch black. There was no moon. It was a new moon. And I turned on my flash on my phone and there was this cormorant like on the beach, like on this little stretch of like sand. And he was like limping around in like mm. a circle. And I was like, oh no. And so like, I kind of scooped him up in my jacket and I brought him home with me and I put him in a box and he fell asleep in this little box. And I took him to a wildlife rescue the next day. And uh, but it turned out he had a broken leg. I don't know how mm -hmm. it happened, but like, anyway, so it was, but it was like crazy. He bit the crap wow. out of me. I was gonna say, they don't mess <laughs> around. Those things are, are yeah. cured. And they, like, they're little, they have like a little tooth on the I was gonna tooth. say, the hook on the end of the beak is a, is. It was I mean, not a joke. It. it was like at my face and I was like, yeah, easy yeah. guy. But yeah, um, but Ben, uh, show us your shoe bill. Your shoe bill. Shirt. So we're gonna get to the shoe bill uh, later in the show. Um, I want to start actually with um, uh, uh, with science bullshit. Great. Um, and I think you know since we've had you on the show, the amount of science bullshit that has overtaken the news has yeah. been just astonishing. And so I, I'm interested in your, in your thoughts about misinformation, disinformation and science and the way, the way a kind of motivated reasoning about COVID has kind of overtaken large parts of the discussion. Yeah, I mean it's it's um, it's a rich uh, and complicated ecosystem that that uh, you know goes all the way from um, the primary researchers generating the data through what gets shared on social media with a lot of steps along the way, and um, you know it's actually you know I wrote something about this uh, this it came out at the start of the year. It was actually we wrote it before COVID, and then uh, and then. Um, sort of didn't get around to doing anything with it and then kept getting harassed by the publisher to send it in. And so we finally sent it in and, 
and uh, what is it um, called? It's called Misinformation in and About Science, and uh, it's in PNAS. And um, there we we put in some mention of COVID just because it was kind of happening, but it was something we've been working on um, beforehand. And and it's you know the, the aim is to try to draw out some of the parallels between the sorts of misinformation that we talk about in society and the sort of and and what happens in the scientific ecosystem. Um, but but in general, I think uh, you know you sort of think about, um, you know, there, there are a whole suite of problems in the way that science is actually operating um, that are coming from a couple of places. Um, you know, there's all the stuff around the replication crisis that we've all heard about and, and uh, read about. We can come back and talk about that because I have thoughts there. Um, then there's the whole fact that, of course, science, scientists aren't uh, these sort of, uh, Phil Kitcher has this great phrase, um, he says, you know, we sort of imagine scientists as being epistemically pure. But we're just trying to find the truth, but we're all epistemically sullied. We all have incentives that are um, out there uh, that we're responding to. There's certain things we have to do, among other things, to keep our jobs or to get our next job or whatever the case may be. And so people are responding. Basically, the way I think about it is these norms and institutions of science um, and they may be brick and mortar. They may be sort of norms like, you know, what are, what are credit attribution norms or, or priority rule stuff or whatever. These give rise to um, incentives uh, for individual scientists to, to make certain choices about the sort of research and, and publication strategies they have. Scientists respond to those incentives being, you know, relatively reasonable, uh, relatively rational actors um, and make their choices about what am I going to study? What results am I going to report, et cetera? How am I going to frame them? Um, and then that, of course, leads to uh, so those decisions that are used to sort of interrogate nature um, and, uh, and we find certain things and we don't find others. And so our knowledge is somehow, you know, the knowledge that we have about the world then comes out of that whole process. And so there's this kind of connection between the norms and institutions that evolve sort of happenstance out of, you know, culturally evolved happenstance out of the way that people were doing science in Western Europe uh, 300 years ago or doing doing natural philosophy in Western Europe 300 years ago, linking up to um, the things that we believe to be true uh, about the world today. And so there's a lot of room in that process for things to go wrong. It works amazingly well, considering. And uh, this is why we, you know, in less than a year have this vaccine that uh, is that is you know um basically keeping people out of the hospital um you know despite massive evolutionary change in the virus and so forth but there's also um you know we also it also gives rise to things like the replication crisis so sort of on the science side there's all of that going on and then and then that gets filtered through a whole bunch of other layers you know just to, just to kind of pick one thread you get uh, you know the university you have these this research being done at universities university press offices then are charged with promoting this um, both to uh, gain the attention of, uh, of donors, um, but also to justify their own existence to state legislatures and the likes. Um, university press offices then take this research and try to make it look as enticing as possible to, um, to popular If news. you're lucky enough to have a functioning university press office. If you're lucky enough to have a functioning university press office. And functioning is, the I mean, big issue is what is the function, right? And so... Um, so what happens is that introduces a ton of hype. Scientists uh, have kind of all agreed that they can wink and nod and tell whatever bullshit they want to the university press office. And so, um, you know, you're not going to get away inside in, in cell saying that, you know, your 
your thing that inhibits cell growth in a mouse spleen is, uh, is, is a cure for cancer, but you can tell that to the university press office and they'll say, you know, such and such researchers cure cancer. Um, and, uh, we, you know, then that of course gets, <clears throat> those get pumped into the media ecosystem in a lot of different ways. Um, a lot of it's sort of just very loosely, uh, rewritten by media under increasing pressure to generate a high volume of stories without paying anybody serious full-time salaries to do science reporting. And, um, and, you know, one thing that people have found is that a large fraction of the bullshit that appears in popular articles in the New York Times or anywhere else, uh, those kinds of venues, um, it was introduced at the university press office level, which is really wow. discouraging. Um, and so that's, so, you know, so, so, so that's just sort of one of the problems. And then, you know, and then reporters, of course, have their own interest in, in amplifying these stories. So in our book, we say, you know, uh, uh, you know, everyone knows that correlation isn't causation, but it doesn't sell newspapers either. Right. And so, um, you have this, uh, um, you know, no one's going to say, oh, scientists find that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, R squared value of 0.13 between um, exercise and uh, and prostate cancer, um, and and that shift every everybody's belief by about this much. Instead, they're going to say, you know, do this one thing to avoid prostate cancer, right. and, and and so on. And and so that that you know, so by the time even you get to the mainstream media presentation of scientific results, they've already been biased in this whole host of ways. Then you hit social media and you hit all of the other motivated reasoning and you hit all the politicization around science and our, you know, that we see around COVID or climate change or anything else. Um, and you throw in all the bad actors that are trying to, you know, using these strategies that are described as agnotogenesis, you know, creating doubt on purpose. So this is your, um, you know, basically trying to create doubt in order to stave off regulation. And so obviously we've seen that with big tobacco, big oil. Now we're seeing it heavily around COVID, right? Um, so you kind of throw all of this stuff into the mix and add a heavy dose of human psychology and, and confirmation bias and, and motivated reasoning and everything else. And by the time you uh, um, have people consuming information about the world and, and then passing that on through social media where we all are the editors and things don't even have to go through reasonable editors anymore. We're quite far off from the state of nature that we thought we were interrogating with scientific process. All right. So that's fascinating. And I'm, I'm, it's causing me to sort of imagine a bullshit pie chart where you say the, the, the pie chart depicts only the the bad information that the consumer ingests okay. and it's divided up into wedges composed yeah. of the sources of the bad information yeah so what you've identified a whole bunch of the a, a bunch of a bunch of sources but not sort of the the percentages of the pie that they occupy so if we're describing the bullshit pie, yeah, what percentage of it do you think is university press offices distortion? Yeah. What percentage of it is crazy people, you know, because they hate Joe Biden promoting ivermectin, right? What 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 percentage of it is 
yeah. corp is corporate denialism of of the climate change variety. Right. So it depends. It depends what level um, you're we're talking about. So um, you know, if it, the percentages are going to be different if you're looking in uh, in the New York Times versus you're looking on um, on Facebook uh, at your uncle's Facebook feed, right? Um, and so, you know, I think as we, and so the percentages sort of shift as we, do you have a particular place that you'd like, like specific answers and soon me dodging the question again? Well, so I'm, I guess what I'm interested since I'm thinking about COVID yeah. is if somebody, if somebody is highly resistant to what you and I would understand as COVID uh, best practices, whether yeah. it's getting vaccinated or wearing masks in certain situations or, you know, not licking people's faces, you know, whatever the, um, uh, I, I guess I'm interested in what your, and granted this is impressionistic, what your sure. sense of, of the likelihood that that is distortions of real scientific papers that are, yeah. you know, or whether that's, you know, an information operation that's likely yeah, right, to, a, right. what, like, what, what are the probabilities or is it just such a melange of, of all of these things that you actually can't tell at, at the well, end well, of the day? Well, one of my big fears around this, and we almost wrote a book on this, you know, is, 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 made up stats that people just kind of pull stats out of the air and then quote them and then they get a life of their own. So I'm really reluctant to say, oh yeah, it's 47% uh, uh, information operation and 33%. I'm afraid that would take off and go for a run on its own. But, um, but, you know, I think that if we're looking at, if we're looking at, 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 yeah, if we're looking at the Facebook feeds that have convinced people to uh, do things that you and I would think were incautious with respect to COVID, um, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, just to you know, put some approximate numbers out there, you know, half or more is just in, uh, the consequences of political polarization within the United States and, and you know, uh, the association of certain um, uh, views with more than half with certain views with with sort of uh, you know, tribal identity, so to speak. Right. Um, now, the place that gets a little bit more complicated is you can ask, well, why are those things associated with particular tribal identities? And um, there you have more heavy. So so in terms of what's actively you know, pushing this is is, is, is largely this politicization. Um, but but why? You know, if you told me sort of in 2019, oh, yeah, we're going to have a fucking terrible pandemic. Am I allowed to say that on here? Oh, well. yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Don't worry. Sure. <laughs> and, um, we wouldn't have made it through 575 uh, episodes if we weren't allowed oh, okay. to swear. Okay. Trust me. So, um, yeah. So, you know, we wouldn't have, um, you know, if you told me we we're going to have a terrible pandemic and uh, and the and one political party is going to um, insist that people should be wearing masks and the other is going to be insisting that they should take ivermectin. Um, you know, do you want to bet on which is which and how much do you at two to one and how much do you want to bet? I wouldn't have put a lot of money down. Right. So that was, you know, somewhat happenstance the way that those things got aligned. Um, you know, it's some of the, I mean, it's, it's not such a big surprise that, uh, you know, one party may be more in, in, in favor of uh, uh, allowing the market to take care of uh, healthcare things that was never designed to. Um, and the other party may be more in favor of, uh, of, 
government interventions um, that uh, some would see as restriction of freedom. And you might be able to predict that in advance, but, but an awful lot of this has been sort of created opportunistically as we go along. And it's been created by politicians that have seen opportunities for it. It's definitely been created by foreign disinformation um, uh, operations. I suspect that those are not a huge contribution to what's going on, but they're definitely there. We can see them, we can track them. Um, we study them at the Center for the Informed Public here at the University of Washington. Um, they're definitely political and, uh, I mean, sorry, definitely uh, commercial um, interests that are that are heavily involved. Um, you know, those kind of the, the lines blur there between um, between between commercial interests and political interests. But we have, you know, Koch Brothers funded think tanks um, that are actually you know still forming the new to. Uh, promote an anti-interventionist uh, worldview. Um, and, and now to some extent, you know, and, and part of the, you know, it's horrifying to me is a lot of this has gone sort of in the direction of, uh, you know, virulent anti-vax propaganda. And so one of the latest fronts for uh, for this battle is is uh, anti-vax propaganda in, in Africa. Um, and uh, so the Brownstone Institute, for well, example. It reminds me a lot, no, like, not to not to reduce it but it reminds me a lot about the about the early hiv prevention um, around around like the the and like not anti of course it wasn't anti-vax but it was anti-condom usage and like the like the the kind of and the and the ideas of what condoms would do to you if you use them and like all of these types of crazy i mean and that was like late 90s early 2000s i mean i remember actually doing a this is going to date me not that i need to on this show but because everyone knows how old i am but like uh why do you remember writing a model un resolution about this type of thing and like kind of like being like about spreading proper information about condom distribution and things like that but anyway um so one of the things that i have no that that like that we've mentioned briefly but i like i saw that like you had mentioned also on your twitter account and at various points in the past couple of months um was just kind of like where the blame falls with social media mm-hmm. and i think this is like a super interesting question um one because of kind of exactly where you place like kind of the university of washington's work in this uh, Kate Starbird has done insanely right. amazing work in this area, um, and she was doing it at the Stanford Cyber Center before that. Um, and like all of this is like fantastic. I mean, but increasingly, as I'm looking at a lot of this stuff, as a like as an and I pull back to kind of like the theory. I love that you introduced this idea of like the university press offices Mm -hmm. spreading disinformation or like the idea that like this is like a that there are various moments of augmentation or various moments of misinformation and I'm so I'm going to actually focus on the journalist aspect not to throw my fellow journalists under the bus but like I kind of think that one of the things that you talk about and you focus on science and like this idea, but like there's the Gelman, um, the Gelman amnesia, which is this idea that like, oh, if you know about something, you immediately are like, the New York Times fucked up this story like a million times over. But right. like, let me tell you that as like both a sci- like a scientist and a journalist and a like and a lawyer, that I watched them do this all the time. <laughs> and so yeah. like, 
I take all of my news with like a huge grain of salt. Um, but that is to say that like basically that a lot of the same and like and this is actually something that I'm increasingly trying to I'm writing a paper about and I have it coming out like soon. But the same metrics that we've been talking about for clicks for social media and the like the advantage of having a salacious headline or some type of like is the exact same incentive structure that like our media now relies on. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, and so so there's nothing to stop them from taking up and like giving to their fact checkers that the university press office said this. And so it's true. And that's yeah. all, and like having gone through multiple fact checking processes as a journalist, I can tell you that's all you need. Right. So right, like, right. Yeah. So I mean, I, uh, we we talk about this in the book a bit, and and I, you know, I think that's completely right. I mean, lately my focus has really been on social media and the way that uh, that social media creates dynamics of information flow that we don't understand and we don't know how to control and that are kept deliberately opaque from us by the algorithmic uh, forces that be and the, and the complete control of the information that the companies have. Um, but, but you know, in the book, we write more about how there is this fundamental change once you go to click-based revenue. Um, and so the shift from, uh, the shift from subscription-based revenue, and, and I consider uh, old, old school advertising being subscription-based as well, because your subscription-based determines your ad rates. Um, so, you know, in the, in the past, you used to form a long-term relationship with a news source, you know, New York Times, something like that. And so a yeah. story in New York Times was not necessarily competing tooth and nail for your attention um, the way that they are now. And so now, you know, instead I pull out my iPhone in the morning and I get, you know, Apple News on here and I have a reasonable, you know, analysis of, of, uh, of, Biden's latest policy plan, and then below it, you know, you know, like, and literally, you know, like somebody got a got a butt job, and there's nine cats that look like Disney princesses, and and you know, and I'm I'm a good person, but I'm not that good of a person. I mean, you know, I'm clicking on the well, I'm clicking well, on well, the garbage. Well. It's this head-to-head competition across venues, um, you know. And what we say in the book is that the, is that the unvarnished truth is no longer good enough. Yeah, try publishing the law lawfare in in this environment. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's like yeah. you're com- you're actually competing. You know, you put out a dense analysis of the law of of uh, 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 the interaction of the law of uh, conspiracy with the law of insurrection. And you're competing with the five cats that look like hairless cats that look like Vladimir Putin for right. eyeballs in the morning. Exactly right. What's that? That's a real. That, that's a real listicle. No, I know. It, it is. It's probably why I know. It is. We all are. I mean, you know, I, somewhere I've got a screenshot where I've actually got those other two things like together up against a analysis of midterm policy changes and uh, the, you know, the. Um, but can I say that this is yeah, not... Yeah, I mean, probably why I shit post on Twitter so much is because, like... Well, this is... I mean, now you're competing with Scott Shapiro. But I'm just going to say for a <laughs> second that, like, that, like, basically... No, I just really want to say this, that there is, like... I have... I've been... And I don't... 
I don't want to kind of like undermine this point that we're like that, that like this is a frictionless environment that we're dealing with as opposed to like everything before. But I'm watching like the old versions of Sherlock Holmes that are from like you know Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes, or I'm wa- you know or like far like all or like I'm reading through actual physical microfiches documents like kind of things for for a thing that i'm doing and like they're basically all kind of the same there are these pictures of like newsies hawking salacious headlines in the same level of clickbait that they do today and like here's the difference is like we were in the privacy of our own homes when we decide to click on the national enquirer Versus like having to, I literally do remember, like I would, I would look at the National Enquirer, I would want to buy the National Enquirer, I would not want to pay the money for the National Enquirer. And you know what the real thing was, I couldn't stand the stare from the clerk at like, as I checked out of them judging me as I bought the National Enquirer. And so I didn't do it. But now we don't have that anymore. I think that's, that's right. Um, You know, you're you're totally right about, uh, about, uh, you know, Really, garbage journalism. I mean, this goes back into the into the nineteenth century. There were, you know, in our in our course, we talk about these uh, these amazing articles. There was a whole series of articles that ran for two or three years by Kate about. Um, <laughs> She's still here. Um, about uh, about the people that lived on the moon that had been discovered with these new telescopes, and they had wings, and they uh, flew around, and they had orgies, and all kinds of things were. Um, and these were, you know, this was, so, so you get more of this kind of head to head competition when you're selling a newsstand. Um, and so definitely we've seen, we've seen that. It's just, I think that the, the, um, you know, click-based advertising takes that to an extreme and, you know, the idea of news aggregators and, and social media and all this other stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it is a problem through and through. And like you say, also just not having the, uh, um, you know, part, partly there's no social, uh, um, there's, there's, there's no sort of social disapproval around this because we do it in private and partly there's no social disapproval around this because we don't disapprove of anything anymore. I mean, uh, you know, like I'm here talking about like, oh yeah, I was reading about someone getting a new butt. And I mean, I don't even know how many people are on the, are on the other end. So, <laughs> well, you know, like everyone reads about somebody got a new butt. That's, but I think the point about the, the collapsing of platforms into one another is a really important one. So it's not like the volume of bullshit is, I mean, the volume of everything is more than it used to be. Right. But, you know, we used to have the weekly world news in the supermarket aisle every time you checked out. And, you know, uh, you know, the alien might endorse Clinton that day yeah. or it might, right? Like that was like part of the information ecosystem, but it was segregated from yeah. the rest of the information ecosystem. And now the information ecosystem is by its, you know, is highly integrated and your access to it, which That's we normally... We normally think of in terms of porn, right? Kate's point about buying the National Enquirer is the point that everybody who remembers being a 13-year-old boy above a certain age, right. you know, had with, with uh, and there's even, you know, the great uh, 
uh, scene in Bananas where Woody Allen, you know, tries to tries to buy uh, porn and, you know, has to collapse it along, you know, with lots of high minded magazines. Like um, here's Harper's The Economist, The New Yorker and Playboy. <laughs> no, no, it's not Playboy. Know, it's and Playboy. and and the, the punchline <laughs> of the scene is um, uh, is the the woman who's checking him out you know, can't find the price and screams across the room, how much is screw? Uh, that's, <laughs> you know, but like, but there, but that level of friction with respect to bad information uh, does insulate it from a certain amount of, of the population who are, have either like inhibitions about buying it or are just, you know, they they may be titillated by it, but they actually know it's not good for them. And so when they're in the supermarket aisle, they don't buy it. Right. And so I guess I guess my question is also true. Sorry, I'm just going to add on to your question really quickly, which is like, imagine this and then you have food stamps and then you have other types of things in which you're supposed to be buying certain types of things and you're trying to like buy something like a bag of Doritos with food stamps and like you have like anyways I'm just like kind of saying that this is like various types of things in like the scrutiny of retail markets of thinking like of it has to pass by a person makes it much more of a social dilemma constantly than like any type of like like it's not just that the internet like ex like gets rid of it like self checkout gets rid of it in the right in a no way. no I look so, I think I think the the you know the 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 point and we we actually studied this at one point in a paper that I worked on for uh, uh, at Brookings. Hi. Um, it's a puppy. Hi. Um, oh my we, gosh, she's cute. She's she was cute. on the floor growling at me, so she was either going to stop barking or I was going to have to pick oh, her up. Oh, hi. <laughs> yeah, she can totally come up here. Hi. You're so, so we, cute. We, yeah. we actually uh, studied the frictionless quality, uh, of porn at one point, uh, and sort I'm of, sure you did. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, very aggressively. Um, and, um, but I think the people talk about it less with respect to just bad information, but I think yeah, that's the really is the same. You don't have to look somebody in the eye and say, I'm going to read a lot of nonsense tonight. You this just do it. This is fascinating to me because my my kind of my thought about this was that um, I was very much more focused on the way that uh, the structure of the market for information or market for attention allowed head to head competition. Um, and, and and but your your point about the friction and the being socially judged and so forth is is really interesting to me. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to be throwing. No, no. Do whatever you need to um, do. Yeah. yeah. There is. Um, I am interested, though, to see how you think that this impacts um, things like uh, where. So one of the other things that I haven't gotten to bring up and I'm really desperate to bring up with you is like I have studied um, a fair amount the, uh, the 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 blame causation structure. Bertram Malley at Brown is like who is um, who I've talked to. Who I went to Brown, but he wasn't there when I was there. But anyways, he's a cognitive scientist. He studied this a lot. Larry Solon at Brooklyn Law School has studied this, but it's basically tracing like how people find blame and like the least cost avoider and like where they stop their blame 
structure in terms of like searching back through like if you really can't causatively link it to someone like if you really can't like where you stop to to place it and like increasingly what their studies show is that they stops at basically the person like the structure or the institution that has the most money or, or the most yeah. ability to pay um, yeah. and so this is one of the reasons that like it's for airplane accidents that are unsubscribed it like stops at like the airplane it's yeah. like you know um even if they couldn't have done anything yeah to, to stop the accident um and so similarly i'm finding that this is like true of social media which is like they're just huge corporations with tons and tons of money and so this is where our blame but even like but though you rightly maybe point out that maybe we could just do a better job of having the university press offices put out bulletins. No, well, I think you have to, to blame there. Like, you have to take, a, you gotta take a nuanced view of that. I mean, of course, there's going to be a lot of contributors along the way. Um, you know, the, the, the social, I mean, I, I don't think any of this lets personally, I don't think that, and we, should, we you could argue about, we can argue about this. I don't think any of this lets, you know, the, you know, the Facebooks of the world off the hook in the least. Um, uh, so, I mean, the, the blame absolutely lies in the, uh, you know, perversities of human psychology. Otherwise, mm. none of this would work. But uh, these these companies are deploying algorithms that, uh, you know, that discover and exploit those perversities um, to uh, the cost, you know, to the detriment of society. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, that particularly when they're going out of their way to um, deter transparency in what they're doing, um, yeah. that's an enormous problem. So you know, my, my uh, postdoc working that I work with, Joe Bach Coleman says, you know, look, the, you know, trying to deal with social media, um, you know, uh, and, and the harm that's being done by disinformation and misinformation spreading on social media, is kind of like you know what if uh, when they've got all the data and won't share it and you know when they did share it they'd actually completely screwed it up and so they managed this is a whole other story which you probably remember when the data was no up. no Laura's been on the show and we've had yeah. me personally on the so, show I mean, and boy, like well, Josh Tucker so yeah we just we just happened to we just happened to send all of the social media researchers of the world on a three year wild goose chase are bad um, and there just happens not to be any information that could be used to regulate us because they were off doing this working on this false data set. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, that, that the, the, you know, what, what Joe says is it's, so it's like, it's like, imagine we we're trying to deal with global warming, but Exxon was the only one who had a thermometer. I mean, you know, and. Well, even better. I imagine that like, as I've said before on this show and like to specifically to Nate and to Laura Edelson at NYU and to others, yeah. like is basically like, listen, like you, like, there is no such thing as transparency creates accountability like they can't just give you all of this stuff like you can't trust them that's the whole point what has to happen is a double check which is like what laura's doing yeah. in the scraping side of things absolutely and then and then against whatever it is that they're providing and then absolutely. when you can do that double check you have accountability but it's two levels of transparency that you have to enable and no one seems to be having this conversation they think it all is like going to be like oh the data companies just give up all their data and it's like 
No. You know, they recruited <laughs> us, and we can't trust them to do yeah. that. Because they, you know, for, you know, for all practical purposes, you know, had an Excel error in the data they gave us. So, so um, I, I do think that it was. I think it was a. I think it was an innocent error, but I do think that it was. It, 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 it may was well terrible. have been innocent. It was. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reserving judgment. There was bloody convenient whether it was innocent or not, but. Uh, um, I, and I think there are innocent errors and there. I mean, there are innocent errors that you didn't bother to find because it wasn't worth looking very hard. If, uh, well, if, I also if their bottom line like, had been at stake, you might have checked those data a little more carefully. The, um, the entire project might have not had the amount of rigor and funding that it had at the outset and that like kind of like tailed off at the end, which created some of those errors. So I'm like with you 100 percent. But like still, that being said, like give them the benefit of the doubt and see what happens. Um, Tony Kava. Oh, Tony. How are your hummingbirds, Tony? Oh, wait. And his he has a stellar J that he's been feeding. I know he does, ben, but he's been rescuing hummingbirds ben, the last couple ben, of days. You're muted. You're muted, Ben. Sorry, I like should have said that instead of just saying your name over and over again. Before we go <laughs> to audience questions, oh, including sorry. Tony's stellar J, we got to talk about the shoe bill. Okay, because shoe bill. Because the shoe bill sorry. is having a moment on Twitter. Uh, people are tweeting shoe bills at me all the time. Um, Who knew? You know something about shoe bills. I got um, really, really kind of hooked on shoe bills a few years back because for the same reasons I suspect that a lot of us are. Still never they're seen crazy one. Looking? What's so that? They're, they're crazy they're com- looking? They're crazy looking. They're, they're crazy they're... looking. They're dinosaurs. They're giant. They are very judgmental. In terms of the expressions that they put on their faces, which I think they bow really cool. to you if you bow to them. They bow. I mean, they're one. No, why do they do that? that? They do not. Do they really? Yeah. yeah. They that. Really? That's, that's yeah. where Buckbeak the hippogriff comes from. Oh, yeah, really? I, I, I do think Buckbeak is a stupid. Agree. Yeah. Um, oh, Ben, is this face? Like not just like is that an actual face that shoe bills make? That's under her. I thought that was just like a dark wing duck. No, life. no, no. They look like this. They look like so, that. So, so here's my question, and it's really precise and simple. And <laughs> what the fuck, shoe bills, man? Okay, <laughs> I'm trying to find this. Like, so I just, so I wrote this. I, I mean, I was really into shoe bills, bills when I was writing the, the, the second edition of this uh, of this book. And while I'm talking to you, I'll, hopefully, I can find the pictures of it. But we put, I put a little story of shoe bills in here because I always like to, I always like to get my favorite critters into uh so this is the this is my evolution textbook not pitching it just it just acknowledging where it's coming we're from. pitching oh, no. it though. i'm going to now buy your evolution no 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 don't do that <laughs> um okay yeah so here's so here's uh so here's the here's the shoe bills there they're in there you can see <gasps> oh, damn it there goes the microphone is that a blue heron there's a blue heron okay so so the whole story behind all of this um is a pretty cool story which is that uh um we thought for we thought for a long time that shoe bills were modified herons. They were most closely related to herons. Um, and, and the whole name shoe bill stork, right, is wrong. Shoe bill, it well, has, it has nothing to do with a stork. So, right. Some people thought they were storks as well. Um, what's what's kind of fun is um, is that uh, um, is that. Uh, John Gould, who's a very famous ornithologist, kind of second to to, to Audubon, perhaps, um, described the shoe bill in 1851 and said that it was a kind of pelican. And uh, ever since, birders have kind of been like, "WTF? Like, what a what a what a moron!" Until they did the genetics, 
And it turns out. Is it genetics? Out, oh, okay. I was going to ask if it was like some type of like are, fetal, if it was like. Fetals are pelicans. <gasps> and, they really uh, are? Yeah. Well, they're. I they're, thought they were isolates. They're most. Oh. Well, they're, they're not. Yeah, they're not pelicans because pelicans are their own group, but their pelicans are their closest relatives. Oh. I and, didn't know uh, that herons were derivative of storks. Well, they're. they're I mean, well, I kind of. I paid better mean, attention when my grandparents were talking to me. Anyway. Okay. There's just this wonderful story about uh, about John Gould saying, yeah, they're pelicans, and everyone saying, you know, boy, he got. You know, he, he got a lot of things right, but boy, did he screw that up. And, and, uh, and then just we've recently discovered, in fact, that they are most closely related to pelicans. And it kind of makes sense when you look at them and some of their behaviors. And So what do um, they eat? Like when they eat, do they eat like, yeah, tell me about this. They're ferocious they, hunters. They eat these big ass eels in the. Uh, really? Are, yeah. And they just and like, they like. And they and they eat them whole. Yeah, yeah. They just grab them and then they go, and there they go. Um, but like herons, there's all these pictures recently of like herons stabbing to death, like gophers and like rats and like they, when I was uh, when I was in grad school, the herons used the heron the blue herons used to eat there were enormous uh, ground squirrels in uh, in California that are like you know the size of a woodchuck basically, and uh, the herons would get these things and they just throw their neck up and the crown squirrels like four times the size of the parent's neck whoop, gets stuck halfway down and it's still kind of kicking a bit and then goes the rest of the way down it was wild can i ask a weird question so why why like owls eat like bowls and like all and they and they like they kick up pellets um and they like and the pellets that you can then like as i did many a time and have since done right. because i'm a weirdo find the pellets and then dissect them. And like, you can put together a whole skeleton of a bowl from like right. the pellet thing. But like, why don't herons and shoebills do that if they're eating these giant rodents whole? That's a great question. I don't know. I suspect they probably do spit that stuff back out. Yeah. Um, I suspect. Really? I mean, someone, someone should correct me. I can tell you, instead of answering that, I'm going to tell you something super cool about Greaves. Um, which is uh, so. If you, y'all, y'all, y'all should listen. To, I'm here for it. Y'all should listen to Bird Note um, because I learned about this from Bird Note. But uh, um, so so grebes are amazing. Grebes eat like all kinds of like super spiny fish and crayfish and things like that. Um, just another aquatic predator like this. And um, and actually, the things they eat would perforate their intestine if, if they let it go all the way through. So what grebes do is they eat their own feathers. And uh, and and in fact, they feed their feathers to their offspring as well, so that the babies they feed their their own feathers to the babies. I've watched them do so this. Do they like? Do they like? They line their intestines. It makes a plug at the t- at the bo- at the bottom of the stomach. Then uh, the stomach acid, sort of the the juice of everything, goes down through the the uh, the bones and crayfish shells and things get caught in the plug, which they then cough up. The really fun thing about this is that the first uh, some some early uh, I believe they were Spanish uh, explorers described this behavior um, in uh, you know in the in I think the 16th century and um, and they said that the um, there was some kind of religious allegory here I can't remember what it was but the but the uh, 
but the grebe, um, they explain, uh, is a bird that that's sole source of sustenance is its own feathers. And wow. And so, and you think, and, and so, which is so partly right. <laughs> you know, the grebe is not a perpetual motion machine. They say, that, yeah, they, they, they it's say got that. a like matrix vibe there. You say like, God, that's stupid. And then you, and then I, then I turn around and say to you, well, have you ever seen a tree? Where the hell does all that wood come from? Right. So it's actually not such a stupid idea. Uh, oh uh, wow! What an amazing, what an amazing kind of observation that is. Anyway, like, it's all like y'all should listen, seriously listen to Bird Note. It's all on Bird Note, which is uh, cool. I'm like, all right. So I, so I want to go back to an important shoebill question. Yes. Um, I saw a video about shoebill parenting that was yes. very upsetting. Yes. Because according to this video, shoebill has generally two chicks right and it's, they should tip off with pelicans by the way anyway keep going I and really basically you know they've got like really roman attitude toward the chicks the stronger one uh they the the mama shoe bill kind of figures out which is the stronger one and then will only feed the stronger one that's right um, and, and pelicans do the same thing as it turns out and uh, I'm also quite fond of pelicans, and it was—it definitely took me a while. Like uh, the pelicans, I think shoebills do this some too. They—they—they help—they—they um, they help the weaker one off this moral coil. Um, and do and, they feed it to the stronger one? Don't uh, Ben? Because I'm—I'm—I have to say I'm upset by this. I will. I—I I have. I, I've, I've gone through this phase with both pelicans and shoebills of coming to acceptance, being angry at them for a while. And yeah, then, exactly. And then being, and then kind of coming to acceptance of, of all of that. Um, yeah, my thing. I, I really love pelicans, and then when I sort of every time I looked at one, and it was a, and it was a, what do you, what, what do you call an individual that killed a sibling? It's not a siblicide. It's a sibling. Fratricide. Fratricide. Yeah, but well, anyway, a or I mean, that's they're all. I don't think there's a gender-neutral word for it. Hi, Michael. Hi, friends. Michael, the floor is yours, sir. Wow, um, I, it was very interesting. I think you know, I, something you talked about, Kate, really resonated with me about the weekly world news. Uh, while you're talking about the National Enquirer, the Weekly World News, I used to see them in the checkout line all the time. And and were you inhibited about buying them? I never bought them. But part of the appeal was exactly what you, you all said, right, was the knowledge that someone out there believes this horse shit. <laughs> the best one I remember was there was this picture of a factory belching smoke and someone had like, you know, done sort of artwork over it of like a face, like a demonic face. And the headline was Satan escapes from hell. And it just stuck with me. Like I never <laughs> wanted to own it, but like it was fantastic to watch it. And the knowledge that someone out there might believe it was why it was appealing. And now that you know, like you don't really see well, that. Now, now you you do see it. You just don't have to buy it. Well, you, you see, see it, at it every store. every day in your Twitter feed. You yes. see it when you sign into Facebook, and you don't distinguish between it and your news. Well, I, I'm very careful about curating my Twitter feed, but yes, you're absolutely right. You definitely don't see it at the grocery store anymore, but you can no longer sell it at the grocery store for the reasons that you all outlined. I guess this is sort of related to my question, though, which is that 
you know, kind of coming back to this idea of, you know, you've talked a lot, Carl, in your book and on Twitter. I love following your Twitter feed, by the oh, way. Please you. keep shit posting. I love it. Okay. It's better than almost anything else I read on Twitter. <laughs> I'm feeling guilty I mean, have... about last night's shit post today. Well, <laughs> I understand. I mean, I also I also sympathize with the regret. Fortunately, nobody follows me, so nobody ever sees my shit posts, and I delete them. I we have a lot of advice <laughs> about. You have a lot of advice for people, you know, about how to avoid bullshit, both in your book and on your Twitter feed, and. And, but a lot of it seems to implicitly assume that the reader wants to see through the bullshit. Yeah, right. It and does. I think one of the challenges that I have in my life is encountering people who don't necessarily want to, or at least don't want to yet. And so I guess I'm kind of curious, you know, what, what are your advice or tactics or strategies you've found or anything that would help kind of dealing with people, sort of bringing them to the idea that maybe they should be aware that there is bullshit and that maybe there are like, do you have any sort of suggestions for how to, to how to do that for people who kind of are swimming in it and don't know it yeah, or do really know hard. it and like it? It's, yeah, it's really hard. I mean, I think they're, you know, it's a great question and I don't, and, 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 and it's such a great question. I don't have a good answer. Um, the, w when it comes to something like COVID, I think a lot of people do want to keep themselves and their families safe and do the right things and so on. And so, um, you know, trying to find that common ground is usually where I would turn in terms of answering, trying, trying to do something like that. Um, you know, for example, talking about, uh, uh, you know, if I'm talking to people who uh, are vaccine hesitant, um, you know, instead of saying, you know, God, you're such a moron not to believe science. Science is amazing. I mean, you talk about how hard it is to, to figure out what to do to keep your family safe and about the trade-offs and, and that kind of stuff. And then, let them answer, ask the questions about the science, and then you can answer it uh, when, when, when asked, you know, but uh, I think it's finding, and this is a very imperfect answer, but it's finding, it's recognizing that there are places that people do want to know the truth about things, um, and then finding the common ground with them and exploring that with them, um, but it's a, that's a, that's an art that I don't have a lot of skill at, and, and uh, um, you know, I don't have any better advice than that. David H., the floor is yours. I asked two questions. One is like a public service announcement. Which one am I asking? You choose. You can even do both. Okay. If you one make it brief because we're running okay. out of time. I know. All right. What I, what I want to know about is your bird photography, which you okay. post on Twitter. I, mean, I think your bird photography is excellent. And I'm curious about how much time you spend on it, where you take all those photos. And then what you do with them, you must have millions of photos. And then there was another question, which was about, about uh, since you've posted several times about, about COVID not evolving to be less virulent necessarily. Mm -hmm. And you've posted a lot about that on Twitter. So that can be answered by people who look at your Twitter feed. Yes. Yeah, so end. birds, um, you know, I, I, I started doing more bird photography uh, um, when, when COVID, uh, hit, cause it, gave, it was like one thing I actually could do. And so, you know, since, since COVID started, I tried to, you know, spend at least an hour every day, just out of the house, uh, walking and taking pictures. And, you know, I always used to wonder how good bird photographers got so many amazing pictures of wild things happening and just, just, you know, wow, they saw this, or they were in this place while the snow was falling, or how does that happen? It turns out the answer is you actually just go outside with your camera. And the more you do that, the more likely you are to be in the right place at the right time. And it's not that the, you know, I mean, definitely there are people with enormous skill at, at getting themselves 
into right places and so on. But the most important thing is just spending more time. So I spend, you know, probably six, eight hours a week uh, on a normal week when I'm supposed to be working, taking pictures and uh, um, a lot more when I go on vacation, of course, might be six hours a day on vacation or eight hours a day. And um, uh, what do I do with them? I mean, there are, I've got uh, 100,000 pictures on the on the on an external hard drive that uh, that I don't do anything with. Um, I post them to Twitter and that's about that's it. your retirement. Carl. Exactly. If you're entitled exactly. to those pictures. They will be completely. Well, hopefully, I'll get better and better. And besides, the new technology. I mean, no one's going to want to look at 2D photos in my retirement. I mean, come on. All right, uh, and vi and viruses and virulence. Do virus they? Uh... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of bullshit going around about how viruses are going to naturally evolve to be less virulent, and that's a crock of shit based on um, some old stuff that everything that we know about that, evolution. That was wrong. <laughs> And, you know, the logic was uh, it doesn't help the virus to kill its hosts, so they'll evolve to become less virulent. It's wrong for a million reasons that I've written around a lot on Twitter, and we can move on to the next question. Tony Kava, you get the last question today. Tony, great to see you. Tony, so good to hey, see you. Hey, it's great to see you. Can you guys hear me? Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent, Carl. It's great to see you again. Likewise. Uh, you know, one thing, one thing about bird photography, and this made me feel about bird photographers like, Ben feels about storks <laughs> is that a lot of the photos are staged. I mean, people make props, you make a branch and you hide some seed on it. And that allows you to just set your camera up and just, yeah. you know, wait for the bird to come. That's not cheating though. That's not cheating. That's totally legit. graphic photographers did. They like yeah. would sit for hours with something I and it's staring at it's it. No more cheating than feeding your weakest child to your, say owls where like baiting owls is really really not okay um it depends yeah. a lot on our relationship with them i i do uh have personal relationships with some of the crows that i photograph in the sense personal oh, yeah. relationship i mean i give them food and they recognize me um right that's my and, relationship with blue jays so yeah exactly like your relationship with blue jays but in general, yeah, I don't, I don't, with, with the exception of that, if you call that staging, I mean, I usually don't feed them when I'm taking their pictures, um, but they do come find me. Um, right. I don't stage, but the thing I do like to do in the photographs, I do think that, uh, that, that, you know, birding or you know, birding is sort of a it's, a, it's a, it's a reciprocal interaction. It's not just you watching something passive. The bird is interacting with you as well. Yeah. And so, you know, if you look at my photos, I think one thing that's really characteristic of the shots I take is that there's almost always eye contact between the bird and I. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, because I want to really capture the fact that, that it's two living creatures interacting with each other. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 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 So that kind of brings me to my question, if I may, and that's about kind of interesting animal bird behavior during like this cold weather that we're experiencing oh, yeah. up here. And, you know, for instance, like uh, the Stellar Jays just, they just went AOL for like four or five days. And in fact, Ichiban and Hachikun just showed up this, this morning. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. First time I'd seen them in like a week. And then I think you might have seen the picture I posted of this hummingbird that's just been I, hanging out at like midnight. I did. That was amazing. On my, on my Christmas lights. And yeah. he's survived every morning. But of course, yeah. I'd never seen somebody out, you know, hummingbird out and about like, uh, you know, at, you know, in the dark. You know, the photos with the lights were remarkable and it, it definitely was pointing yeah. out for 
though. So it was really cool. Oh, absolutely. So I was just wondering if maybe you could talk about maybe some interesting animal bird behavior you've seen or know about in cold weather. And maybe you could compare it to the driving ability of Seattle drivers. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think the birds, I I think, yeah, yeah. So Tony is referring to the fact that I, as a Michigander, find Seattle snow driving to be frustrating, to say the least. It's uh, I'm from Rochester, New York, so I find everyone's snow driving to be completely bonkers, in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, So anyway, um, gosh, you know, snow stuff. I mean, I I don't know that much about bird behavior in the cold. Uh, One thing that's really interesting is I've noticed that foraging behavior changes um, and based on just the, uh, you know, based on snow cover, right? And so... Um, you know, just to give you an observation from the from this latest cold snap, we've got a lot of snow in Seattle right now, which is relatively unusual. Um, is that uh, the um, the seagulls are often uh, seagulls are occasionally information parasites on crows. They watch where crows are aggregating, and then they. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, really? and then they and then they go there, and so I've seen huh. more information parasitism of crows in the last three days by seagulls than I had you know, in the previous six months. Um, and it's because Maybe it's hard it's hard. social media and crows or journalism. And the, yeah, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> so, so this is, this is, you know, that's, that's one little interesting observation. Um, so it's probably a lot harder to find food with everything covered. Um, the, the crows know what the hell they're doing and the seagulls are, you know, now moving in on crows every single time that they see an aggregation of a half dozen crows somewhere. That's we so are gonna leave it there. Be a crow, not a seagull, people. Um, And uh, if you are a seagull, consider your life choices um, and uh, (laughs) repent. Um, Absolutely. uh, I love having you on. Thank you so much for coming on. Carl Bergstrom, you're a a great American. Uh, it's, uh, It's great to have you back. We will be back tomorrow, uh, 22 hours and 58 minutes from now. Do we know who the guest is tomorrow? No, but it's going to be awesome. I think I have a pretty good idea of who it's going to be. It's going to be awesome. I'm excited about it. And I know I I see you in the audience, uh, 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 Reverend Dr. Hillary Livingston, and I have not forgotten that you owe us a Where's the Lie. So if you want to do that tomorrow or Thursday, uh, just let us know. Anyway, all of that will be 22 hours and 58 minutes from now. And until then, KK? We don't have fun anymore, but we do know that shoe bills are officially derivative of pe- uh, pelicans. And we still don't know why they don't cough on pellets. Like, no, I'll get to that. Yeah, that's like a thing that I'm kind of like. This is the best part of the internet. Is like, no, take that. Thanks, you guys. That was super fun. It was always a pleasure. You're the best. Great to see you. I will go.